Whoop is a fitness wearable that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, and how much stress and exertion you put on your body throughout the day. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, and heart rate variability that can be used as an indicator for how to approach your day. The app has built-in features like Strain Coach, which gives you target exertion goals to work out optimally at your body's recovery level. Whoop automatically detects and categorizes your activity so there's no need to start and stop your workout. You can analyze your heart rate throughout the entirety of your workout and also track your calories burned, max heart rate, and average heart rate. It's the perfect way to train. The app also has a built-in sleep coach, which lets you know how much sleep you should be getting based on your expected activity level for the following day. So you can wake up and be recovered based on your performance goals. Whoop is offering 15% off with the code VELONEWS at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P dot com and enter VELONEWS at the checkout to save 15%. Sleep better recover faster, and train smarter. Optimize your performance with Whoop today. Right on! It's July and there's no Tour de France. Well, that's not entirely true. If the COVID-19 pandemic has brought about one change in the cycling world, it's that the online platform Zwift has gone from being a virtual training tool to one of the biggest influencers in the cycling world. With the first stages of its virtual Tour de France run out over the weekend, we thought it time to check in with CEO Eric Min to discuss how the platform has handled the situation and what this means for the future of cycling. Right on! Hello and welcome to another episode of Put Your Socks On. My name is Angus Morton and as always, I am joined by my good buddy, Bobby J. How you doing, Bobby? Doing super here, Gus. Uh, had a nice 4th of July weekend, which included a little gravel ride, extreme gravel ride. It was very <laughs> similar to the one that we did with Yolanda Neff before she left to go back to, to Switzerland. So yeah, it was great. Due to the spike that we've had down here with Rona or the vid, you know, as we call it now, just, just to try to make it a little bit less uh, intimidating or scary. No real big get-togethers, just um, pretty mellow weekend. But, you know, I think that's kind of part of the new normal for us, at least for a while. Yeah, that was the same here, mate. We, uh, I uh, just went out camping for a few days, um, pretty isolated, but... Unfortunately, yeah, there's been a bit of a spike here as well, and so it was a very subdued 4th of July weekend, but, you know, enjoyable uh, nonetheless, and there's been some racing, um, and there's also been some some sad news uh, in the racing world over the weekend. Yeah, I hate to start off with such bad news, but the death of Niels de Vrent, who was only 20 years old, passed away during a practice race called the Wardegem Pitagem of suspected heart failure. No easy way to say that. Our condolences go out to his family, his team, and, and friends during this difficult period. Yeah, that's absolutely heartbreaking news, particularly given that it's, you know, one of the first races back in, in Europe and, and sort of, you know, when a time when we're looking for hope from these races. Bobby, I know you've had um, heart issues over the years and and you and I were discussing before we before we started recording today how there seems to be a prevalence of this, you know, over the last several years in the sport of cycling, and I guess as as um, arrhythmia and, and and heart issues become more recognised, I guess. So I think we should um, perhaps in in the next few weeks maybe do a deeper dive on this in one of our episodes and see if we can't kind of shed a little bit of light on the issue at hand because it seems to be uh, it seems to be a real one. Oh, it's out there for real. All sorts of. AFib, arrhythmia issues, a lot of athletes have them. It's quite common. I just think that there's a disconnect between having it and knowing what to do with it or how to to fix it because a lot of these are quote unquote non-life-threatening, but then there are some also also some ones that may go undetected that are life-threatening and 
I agree. I think we need to do an episode on that and maybe provide some information to people that will hopefully help save lives in the future. Absolutely. And another slightly sad news, although there is a light at the end of the tunnel, Mario Quintana uh, had a brush with disaster whilst out training in Colombia. He was hit by a car. The silver lining is that he came out with no major injuries. Uh, I really hope to see him back at his pre-pandemic form and hopefully this doesn't uh, impede his racing when that kicks off uh, a little later in the year. Yeah, I mean, this is part of the game. All these guys are heading out on the roads to training camps, getting ready. There's a lot of pressure to prepare for the uh, condensed season of intense racing. So let's just hope that everyone's safe out there going forward. Another big thing is, at least here in America and probably in Australia as well, Colombia, flight mm. restrictions. Uh, while, while many of the Americans have been able to make it back to the European training bases, Ian Garrison was not allowed to board his flight in Atlanta and is now kind of stuck in limbo for the moment. I mean, this kid is 20 years old, right? He's just learning the sport, probably got over there and they told him, hey, you need to get a visa or residency card. And then the government shuts down. And then the COVID pandemic hits. Like there's so many things that probably got in his in the way of his workflow to get this done. But let's just hope that he and others that are maybe in similar situations can find a solution to this quickly and get back over to Europe to to start racing. It's a positive news, Bobby. And it's July, the Tour de France. Yeah, the big news of the week is definitely the virtual Tour de France kicking off. This was not only racing for the professional men and women, but also gave the public an opportunity to do the Etape de Tour, which is on the same course. And during the real tour, they always pick out one stage and allow people to kind of go up and, and feel what it feels like, you know, what the professional riders have to deal with. So the pros raced on uh, two different courses over the weekend. They'll continue to do that for the next two weeks. And the Etape de Tour people will be able to, to ride those same courses. So I think that we'll get into that a lot more in detail later yeah. in the show with our special guest. Yeah, so the first stage for the women was won by April Tassi uh, with a perfectly timed sprint. Another notable performance, world time trial champion Chloe Diger was in fourth. Uh, so that was the first stage, which was more of a sprint. The second stage on Sunday was won by Lauren Stevens from Tibco Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, and she won from a small group of five, uh, came across on the climb there. The general classification is run by teams. So Tibco, Silicon Valley Bank uh, have a commanding lead in the yellow jersey race over drops uh, after the first week of racing there. Really exciting racing, I thought. Um, they're definitely getting the hang of, of having, you know, I think they ha had well several different camera angles and were able to kind of, you know, cut it together in a way that was, you know, given the riders can't control their bikes. Uh, it was exciting. I thought it was cool. Yeah. And, and then on the men's side, which was equally as exciting, uh, stage one was won by Ryan Gibbons from the NTT Pro Cycling Team ahead of Pierre-Andre Cote from Canada and from the Rally Cycling Team. So pretty cool that this this young rider from NTT, which was one of the teams that were really running hot when this mm. whole pandemic started, jumps back in and wins the first ever ever virtual stage of the Tour de France. That's got to be pretty cool. And then a lesser known rider gets to show his, you know, show his talent on this platform with uh, Pierre-Andre coming in second. So great, great racing for them. And then uh, stage two, which was the, the Hillier stage. And let mm -hmm. me tell you, if you do the epic side, you're just happy to get to the top of the epic climb. But then when you turn left and have to go up that steep radio tower segment, it is it is a killer. And it was great to see the French riders doing really well. Michael Woods obviously recovered from his injury. He was giving it some stick on that climb. Uh, Teo Gagenhart was up there. Uh, Rigoberto Aran. And remember, those two guys are are doing it at altitude. At least I believe they're doing it at altitude with, with Rigoberto in Colombia and Teo up in um, Andorra. That select group, you need to know what you're doing with those power-ups. And Julian Bernard used his power-up to perfection. 
and gave his team, Czech Segafredo, another team that was really hot going into this whole pandemic, the win just ahead of Freddie Ovet, who definitely has a lot more experience than a lot of these guys on the Swift platform. But Team NTT Pro Cycling keeps the yellow jersey and looking really strong heading into the next weekend. Yeah, that will be exciting. I'm uh, excited to see how next week plays out. And uh, and yeah, I think everyone should tune in if they haven't just to see what a virtual version of the Tour de France looks like. On to actual real world uh, racing news. Florian Seneschal from Dekernic Quickstep won the GP Vermark Sport Commise on Sunday. There was quite a few big names or at least big Belgium names racing that race. So really good performance there from Florian. Yeah, we saw that kind of come out on Twitter and we we're I was kind of shocked. I didn't really know that they were back to racing already. So let's just hope that those races are run well and that we learn certain protocols that'll help these bigger races uh, going forward. And there was an, also a, a time trial by uh, down in Portugal, which was won by Rui Costa, who also had a very strong start to the season. So, you know, we, we discussed this in a couple of podcasts before. If you started this whole pandemic lockdown situation with good form, you're going to have a lot better morale than the guys that were maybe struggling. So it'll mm. be really interesting to see once these guys do hit the road, who's going to be hot and who's going to be not. But so far, it's pretty much the same teams on the on the front. Which is exciting because it's uh, a couple of teams that we haven't really seen click, you know, in the last couple of years. So, you know, I'm hoping that, that uh, we see some, some of these... Uh, some of these people who are winning now and who were performing before the uh, lockdown continue to to tear it up uh, when we resume racing in earnest. It's July and there's no Tour de France for the first time since World War II. Well, as we just alluded to, that's not entirely the case. With COVID cancelling all outdoor racing, the virtual platform synonymous with indoor cycling, Zwift has partnered with the ASO, the head of or owner of the Tour de France, to save the day, creating a virtual stage race in a somewhat modified format to at least give the general public a taste of what the French roads used to be like in July. But that's only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the changes and the growth that has gone on at Zwift over the first half of this year and for that matter over the first six years of its existence. With the first two stages of the virtual Tour de France completed over the weekend, we thought it would be a perfect time to sit down with Zwift co-founder and CEO Eric Min to see and hear how Zwift has been influenced by the lockdown, their partnership with the ASO, the UCI, the riders and the teams, as well as the future of their platform. We also discussed their goal of getting more people active and engaged with new emerging cycling communities, running communities, and soon-to-be rowing communities. I have to say, nailing down our next guest has been a very difficult task. He's a very, very busy man these days. But finally, welcome to Fizzo, CEO and co-founder of Zwift, Eric Min. Thanks, Bobby. Sorry that it's been difficult. It's been crazy times during this uh, pandemic period for us. Oh, absolutely. I totally understand. But there's just so much to talk about. We could go on for, for hours. But yeah, it's pretty interesting. Back in the 90s, I used to have a pair of rollerblades and I called it rollerblading and everybody called it rollerblading only to find out that it's actually called inline skating, that Rollerblades is just a name brand of a company. But you guys are kind of in that same situation now. You guys are now the verb for indoor training. Like people, hey, are you going to go Zwifting today? Are you going to Zwift? Are you a Zwifter? Do you want to get on Zwifty? What has helped you get to that position in the cycling industry? Can you point to any little critical pivot points that cemented your success? I think it probably starts with the the name. Um, and that name was uh, carefully selected. And, you know, when you come up with a name for company, because before we started this company, we set it up as Unreal Sports. And it competed with Unreal Engine, which is a, is a, is a gaming engine that Epic owns. So we said, okay, you know what, we probably should go and 
rebrand. And so we went through an exercise and came up with a synthetic name that kind of represented the, the future of the brand that we wanted to create. Of course, you know, when you, you need to, you know, is the URL available, right? Does anyone have the trademark to this? We went through this whole process. And I think we really nailed it with, with the branding of, of Zwift. Um, and it went through a couple of iterations. I remember, I don't know if you remember the original logo. It's very symmetrical, Z. And um, we thought we needed to freshen that up and made it a little bit fatter. And you wouldn't believe the outcry from the community when we changed the logo. But then after two weeks, you know, everyone got used to it and actually loved it. And then you look at the old logo and it's not that, uh, not that interesting anymore. But like branding, logo, these are all things that are super important. And then from there, you just keep investing in the brand. And then, yeah, I think, I think through all the content that we've created and invested in, um, Zwifting has um, now become part of part of our language, at least within the cycling culture, which is which is pretty cool to see. It's it is somewhat unique. Yeah, we're pretty happy about that. So, what was the the time frame that you're talking about there? Because we met each other in 2014 when I was up in London for David Miller's retirement party. But like, when did when did you start thinking about the URL, the name? How much earlier? So it was January of 2004. 14 we set up shop um march of 2014 we set up uh the company was still called unreal sports and when we launched and so it was over the summer of 2014 we came up with zwift and then of course uh we launched in september of 2014 just a month before we connected in london so that was the beginning of yeah the you know just the the building of of, of this brand i mean that was the the early days so that was the first time most people learned about Zwift was September 2014. Yeah, so it's been, you know, nearly six years, and um, it takes a it takes a while to build that that brand and that awareness. But I think you know, I think we've done an okay job of just protecting that brand and investing in the brand. The brand has, you know, at least my marketing guys are telling me it has a lot of value. <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah, I, I I definitely remember back in the early days. There was just one course, and I think it was the hilly loop in one direction. And then it was a game changer when you guys were able to flip it around and do it the other way. But so much happened so quickly at that period. And there was some early believers in the system. There was some naysayers in the system. But like, what were some of those pivotal things that happened, maybe from the organic level, that allowed you guys to get that kind of momentum going because you know when when there were just bots on the system and just a couple hundred people it was like huh where's this going but like i saw the potential in it you obviously saw the potential in it but what were those stepping stones to to getting to where you are today yeah i remember when we had the the five kilometer track or three mile track around um the original jarvis island and it was just you know on when you go towards the hill we had some snow it was nice beautiful visuals but there was nothing there other than just the track so i remember con speaking to uh, my co-founder john mayfield say look cyclists like to chase carrots we have to have jerseys on offer all the time so let's create three segments one for the fastest sprinter another one for the fastest climber and another one for the fastest lap three jerseys on offer and let people chase it 24-7. And you can only have it for like one hour. After you've won it, it, it starts all over again. That was the game changer. Because then people, you know, you can imagine the people who are Strava users and, and understand the concept of leaderboards. And, you know, then the competition started. And everyone would show up trying to catch, you know, one or more of these jerseys. And then we opened it up to QOM, right, for the, for the, for the women's peloton. Um, that was the beginning of of the gamification, and then we said, "Why don't we add some power ups? Why don't we? What if we gave superpowers for for you know ten seconds or five seconds of different kinds?" And remember, one of them was called the burrito, and the burrito was a power up that allowed you not to be draftable. And we had a, so much outcry from from the community that that was just not very social, not a nice thing to do. And so we said, you know what? Okay, if you guys are complaining that much, we're going to get rid of it. And it literally took six years for us to bring it back because now 
the community is comfortable with the idea of of uh, of, of a burrito power up. Now we've got the invisible power up, right? The the cloak, I guess, is what it's called, and others that we want to to create. So it's been a fascinating journey of of creating a gamified experience, even virtually, when you're dealing with an audience that is such traditionalist, right? Um, so we've if we've taken baby steps, but now I think if you took away all the gamification in the game it would just be boring. And this is, it's taken us six years to get to a point like we wouldn't, of course we would have gamification and these special power-ups. We even went to um, ASO, uh, you know, asked the professionals, do you want these events to have have power-ups or not? They overwhelmingly said, yes, we want power-ups because why wouldn't you want to have a gift of an arrow power-up, you know, ahead of a sprint? <laughs> it's a freebie. <laughs> Well, you don't have to you don't have to battle with me because I really like him, but Gus is kind of on a different page. Gus, what, what what do you think about, you know, Zwift in general, power-ups? I mean, you're a traditionalist, right? You want to be on the outside. Well, I'm 100% not a traditionalist when it comes to the sport of cycling. I will say that, but <laughs> having raced uh and spent my fair share of time on trainers during the winter, I have kind of burned into my memory still the the pain of you know and the and the boredom and so like I I I've used Swift a few times, um, but I'm still getting over that uh, getting over that sort of uh, PTSD I guess. I'm interested to know like how are you kind of capturing you know the old salty dogs like myself who can't bring themselves to get on board with the with the platform necessarily wholeheartedly. Peer pressure. Because <laughs> right. eventually, eventually, Gus, the party is going to be somewhere else and right. you need to go where the party is. <laughs> and you know what, to be honest, Bobby has been applying a little bit of peer pressure and several times during the lockdown, I have found myself on Zwift. And I must say, I'm a huge fan of the platform, despite not necessarily being as uh, an avid user of it. Um, and one of the things that I really love about it is the barriers to the sport of cycling, there are a lot, right? Particularly to the top. The cost, Eurocentric nature, discrimination, the tradition. And I think Zwift has provided perhaps maybe the most egalitarian platform ever in the sport of cycling in terms of, you know, I know you have the Zwift Academy. As an example, there's a, a program out of East Africa called Team Armani who um, I've, you know, sort of become familiar with with, and, and they have been able to use Zwift to essentially showcase the talent of their athletes on a on an international stage at a hundredth of the cost that it would be for them to set up a team and send it to Europe. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this, um, as if it's something you predicted. But then also too, like, is this an example of many programs using Zwift to kind of further uplift and center disadvantaged and minority user groups or geographically isolated groups? Yeah. So I, I talk about how Zwift is democratizing sport, and when I say sport. You know, I can't think of another athletic activity, a sport that you could do from the comfort of your home and compete with the best, you know, competitors around the world. You know, Tour de France being just one example of that. So I think in, ter in terms of access, affordability, it checks all the boxes, you know, and uh, so we're, we're super excited about that, that opportunity. But in terms of uh, your question of like, how do we make this available to more people? The first thing is that we we give away Zwift to kids. Under 16, Zwift is for free. And we have tens of thousands of kids on Zwift. And I think that's an important thing that we need to continue to support because we don't want to have the barriers. Of course, you still need the hardware to get onto Zwift, but we're making at least the subscription available to, to children. And, you know, in the hope that eventually they'll, they will have earnings and they will be able to pay for a subscription. And, but in terms of like how we can reach uh, different geographies, um, I think you, you that that's a perfect example of, you know, federations or teams using the platform to, you know, to, to seek out talent. And I think Zwift Academy is probably the beacon for that, but we hear about these programs all over the world. I just found out and, I, you know, Jumbo Visma team never contacted me, but they're going around looking for talent in the Netherlands using our platform, which is great, which is great. You don't need to ask Zwift, you can set that up yourself. And so there are tons of programs like this already happening on small scale and others much, much larger scale. We've, um, you know, I think, I think 
we have so many inbound requests from federations, cycling federations, wanting to partner with us and host the national championships and use our platform as a talent identification program. Um, so now we're, you know, investing in tools so that all of these uh, programs could be set up on a self-service basis because we just can't service all these inbound requests through the, through, it's just, just too many requests. So we're investing in tools so that the community and federations and institutions can take advantage of the, of the platform in ways that, you know, they can, they can manage on their own. You know, as I think about 10 years down the road, I think you will find a future Tour de France winner from our platform. Um, it's not far-fetched because when you, when you, it's, it's about numbers, right? You, you cast a net pretty wide and guess what? You're going to find some interesting, um, athletes and to, to, to think that cycling has the best athletes in the world is, 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 is just not correct. There are incredible athletes in so many other sports. And so we want to make the sport super accessible, super easy for those athletes. And whether it's running or rowing, I mean, we're already seeing the crossover from triathlons. And so they're just football players. I mean, I think uh, I think uh, some of these, who is the, Evan Pohl is a former footballer, an incredible mm. cyclist. You, you wouldn't think that there'd be such a nice crossover, but just goes to show one data point of how incredible these athletes are in other sports. So, um, yeah, I, absolutely. We want the sport to be accessible. We think the platform is a way to get more people into the sport of cycling. There's nothing wrong with starting the sport of cycling in a safe environment, um, which could be as competitive as you want, all from indoors. And eventually you graduate to, you know, maybe a velodrome or the, the dirt and then eventually to, to the road. I think it is it is very common to hear about people crashing or getting hit by cars. Those are real concerns of uh, of cyclists and parents. So I think if we create more opportunities for people to to get that dose of cycling, even if it's indoors, I think it's, it's good for the sport. But casting that net every once in a while for people that use the system for different ways, there's an outlier. There's somebody that, Hey, I don't believe this person can do that. So kind of touching on people call it cheating, but a lot of the times I call it misinformed people that don't have the proper calibration and maybe overestimating or underestimating certain values that you take into the whole equation to create power. What, you know, for those people out there that are behind their screen, going for those Easter eggs that you mentioned, putting in the game, that jersey, that best lap time, beating your friend, there's always that person that's like, oh, no, you only beat me because of this or that. But what are the, I guess, the safeguards that people can start to believe in? Because when I'm on Swift, I, I just use it for what I need it for, which is trying to get a little bit of fitness in a time crunch situation when the weather is bad. I don't, I'm not really too concerned, but you know, I was an ex pro, so I don't really need to be competitive, but there's people that are uber competitive to get those little Easter eggs that you put in the game. What, what can be done to give them a little bit more confidence, I guess. And what are the steps that everyone should take to make sure that they're on the up and up? There are many people who are, you know, the top dogs of their local community. And then when you get on Zwift and you realize you're no longer the top dog, then everyone must be cheating. It turns out they're incredible athletes from all walk, you know, parts of, of the world. So when you get into a small, you know, small event in Zwift, th these are, you know, you're going, you're going to get stuck with some incredibly talented athletes, some experienced riders, ex-pros. And then, of course, it's easy to say that it must be because someone is cheating or they've got bad equipment. I can tell you very soon, there will no longer be that excuse because um, going forward, we're certainly pushing the industry of the hardware manufacturers to get it to within 1% accuracy and where you can't even calibrate the trainers anymore. You, there's no way to manipulate the trainers. So I, going forward, you're going to see the top, you know, the top brands. As, if you buy the, the higher end uh, trainers, it will be super accurate. And going forward, when you're talking about the, the high profile esports events, they're all probably going to be on the same trainer because it will be some event. And part of that rule set is you have to use this particular trainer on this particular firmware. So I think, you know, 
we're going to knock down these problems, um, these these concerns one at a time. But the trainer is the, the most obvious one. Then you've got the weight issue, right? And I think there are ways for us to verify. It's cumbersome, but the community is already doing that, which is you, you take a video of yourself weighing yourself with with uh, on a scale. And I think that is works reasonably well. It's just not, you know, it's a little bit clumsy. And then what's really left? There's the traditional anti-doping controls that you have to do, right? Well, leave that to the federations to worry about. And then I think we're getting there. We're getting pretty far in terms of like, uh, well, there's also mechanical doping, but uh, even that, you know, we've got algorithms that we know we can build algorithms to catch, you know, what is humanly possible and what's not and can tell, you know, unless you've got a simulator that can really simulate a human being, you'll be able to even catch someone who's got a mechanical, you know, device enhancing the performance. I think we'll get there. It's just not going to happen overnight. Um, but the most important thing I think is, you know, having the professionals compete with one another is helping to just gain general acceptance that this is a platform that, that can showcase even the, 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 you know, the, the most competitive riders, but we have some ways to go. Absolutely. It's not going to happen overnight. And if you guess what, if you want this to be accessible to the masses where $300 trainers going to work, you're going to have to relax some of these rules. And, and, you know, this is on us to create classifications. Might, it might be by trainer category and, and the level of accuracy. And some people might not care. They're just doing it for the workout. But if you do care about competition, maybe there be, should be certain lead events and much harder, stricter requirements around, around verification. And I guess that sort of you mentioned there um, about the, the actual tradition, you know, traditional doping right that you're leaving the anti-doping you're leaving that to the anti-doping agencies to the to the federation that i know you um you and the uci um kind of came together in in at the end of 2019 i'm interested to hear like why you felt the need to bring your platform in line with that governance is it for the anti-doping or is there a bigger plan to integrate you know more closely with the world tour or, 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 or yeah i'm interested to hear the plan there Two reasons. One is for us to further Zwift as a uh, as a sport. I think it's much easier for us to progress as a discipline within an existing infrastructure of, of the cycling governing body, and that's the the strategy that we're taking. Versus like creating a whole new sport and trying to establish it, it just it's a lot more work and more resources would we, we need to go into it. Uh, the second is that there is infrastructure that they have that we can leverage. For example, licenses you know, the biological passport, the calendar even, right? Being able to slide in uh, to a calendar and having access to, to, the, to those riders, leveraging the federations and the distribution that brings to, to Zwift as a business. I think, uh, and guess what? Those are potential customers as well. So for, for many reasons, it just makes sense for us to align there. But I think, I think we're, David Lapartiand coincidentally happens to chair the um, and David Lapartian is, is the current president of the UCI. He chairs the the esports committee for the Olympic movement. It's just by coincidence, and so of course he's taking this on personally to try to move this forward. And I think Zwift represents you know that kind of activity that bridges the gap between the super traditional you know organization like the UC the the IOC. And, you know, what we're seeing in the League of Legends or the Fortnites and the traditional video game esports arena, right? Where there's a lot of commercial uh, pressure to bring those games into the Olympic movement. And I think, I suspect, I can't speak for, you know, the, the IOC, but they're probably like, you know, grappling with this. It's, it's just at, in some ways at odds with traditional, you know, sports. And so I think we could potentially be that bridge. Because what we are bringing, yes, we're a video game platform, we're a video game, it's an MMO, but our athletes are the same athletes participating in the traditional sports. So I think we could be that bridge. And, and it's been quoted by Thomas, Thomas Bach. He tweeted um, that um, Zwift is the kind of, kind of uh, esports that, that belongs in the Olympic movement. And for him to say that is a big, you know, I think voter confidence in, in, in what we're doing. Uh, but what we're we're absolutely trying to use sport as a way of getting more people to to be active. The way people watch uh, Wimbledon and want to play 
tennis or people watch us open want to play tennis we want to do the same thing watch the best players you know compete on swift and then we want to inspire you to get on swift and, and be active so um we're kind of using the sports strategy to get more people engaged with with uh with with our service um because ultimately our mission as a business um and as a company is to just get people to to get moving right to to get them inspired with with sports and um and gamification to 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 integrate fitness into their lives and that's ultimately what we're about we just have chosen this content strategy to do that but swift swift was going places at warp speed before the whole covid-19 pandemic hit which instantly drove masses of new people indoors and i'm i'm interested how did you guys deal with that sudden influx of i would say thousands ten thousands hundred thousands of new users what were the challenges that you had to overcome as far as i don't know server speed or data collection <laughs> wow well you, I, if you remember the early days of swift our servers struggled to keep you know a few thousand people up and running and we made a big investment over the last 2 years to solve all those problems um so that our infrastructure is always one year ahead of our max capacity so we are ready set up to deal with capacity for next winter so thank god that that was already in place so when march middle of march when covid really hit and and there was a lockdown and starting in Italy and then Spain and France we saw just incredible influx like other probably other online fitness uh, businesses and so our infrastructure was able to handle that thank god and it's it's usually when we start to wind down take a little breather and get ready for the next season we didn't have any of that because our we didn't peak till i want to say we peaked in may uh, you know april, at the end of april so the team's been driving pretty hard to keep just the lights on and on um, we've um, so we did uh it, it was really interesting this is worth sharing the people who were coming on board during march and april were not the hardcore cyclists uh, many of them were but they were showing up not to to train for an event they were showing up because they need they wanted to be socially connected with their friends so we had groups of people coming to swift at the same time they're like whole clubs and social groups and they just decided and the only thing that stopped us from growing past april is you could buy any more trainers they they're gone there was no more inventory of trainers left so that was what stopped the growth slowed it down we're still uh, just to put in perspective our new users is still three times higher than last year so we're growing three times as fast as last year this time of the year that's fascinating um and that's something that's really interested me about the the platform of Zwift right it's essentially it can be almost like a social networking system you know because it is um it's 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 user I'm intrigued to hear are there any other bizarre ways or sort of interesting ways that you didn't expect the platform to be used you know over the years or develop in a direction Well we had something called meetups from like 2 years ago where you could have a private meetup when covid hit um it was 8 times the the usage compared to the peak in january this past january so it that's just a further evidence that we we are a social network people were showing up to connect with one another and so we started to deprioritize some of the bigger projects and we invested in some of the smaller features and meetups including well let's not limit it to 50 let's limit it to 100 riders Let's um let's add more social capability so you can do a meet up and stay with your friends right even though you're putting out different efforts um I think it's scheduled probably for for this month but we're going to have res- results which means that you can have a, a private meet up with up to 100 people and guess what you can turn that into a race because you're going to get results and we can take that meet up concept further and further so that you can have these these personal um uh, activities on on the platform so that was one area of uh, that that really changed for us in terms of um you know if we look at how we i think this perception that people show up on swift and they just race that's a fallacy actually only a third less than a third of our customers are actually racing um many of them show up to explore 
Others show up to train. And then there's that, you know, the hardcore less than 30% of the users who show up to, to race. So um, for us, we need to just balance those three different activities. Of course, all the media coverage is around the, the compete part. That's what, you know, that's what people care about. That's what the media cares about. But our customers are kind of well-balanced across all three. And so we have to have that balance of investment across those three areas. And don't forget, we also have running. We're coming out with rowing very soon. And I think by having running and rowing, we're just bringing more people into the activity because I think the sweet spot is cycling. Cycling will always be the the the, the perfect experience within within Zwift for, for a number of reasons. Well, well, take it from me. I don't use the Zwift platform to race, but I definitely look at those little segments and I never thought I'd be able to push myself harder than I actually do inside. And then when you have a, a meetup and you get results at the end, that's going to that's gonna throw a little hot sauce into those little meetups. That's for sure. I guarantee that. But let's move on to the real exciting thing that just recently started, the virtual Tour de France and the virtual Attap de Tour. This must have been a massive undertaking because you guys had to create new worlds and coordinate this with all the world tour teams, all the professional teams that are have been invited. Get me started. Tell me how this came about, because I know it's not one of those things where you just flip a switch and the next day it's up and running, right? There must have been a lot of thought and a lot of phone calls and emails and texts to make this happen. Yeah. Um, so when COVID hit, we said, okay, we need to do something for for charity. We need to raise money for charity. So we said, let's do something called Tour for All. It was never planned. We came up with the idea. And um, this was this was uh this happened in May. So back in April, we said, okay, we need to do something, raise money, create awareness. Um, and then some Eurosport approached us about um, why don't we have a race, a five-day race? They're willing to cover it. And so we invited professional teams men and women, it, we're, we're big on um, gender uh, parity, um, same courses, same distance, and put on a show for five days. And we do this in the spirit of raising money. And it was really a, a, an opportunity for us to, to, to find out if people would tune in to watch. You know, are we a broadcast proposition for consumers? Right, because that would be great if if that were the case. So five days during that that week, you know, I got a call from from ASO about about you know I think they found confidence that this could be a viewing experience for concert for for their you know fan base. So we hatched the idea in in May to do something in July. Really, not very much like six weeks of prep. So we you know furiously came up with the idea. And we scoped it. We didn't have very much time, so we had to work with uh, the the resources that we had. We dropped everything and said, "We're going to pull this together for July. We'll do instead of 21 stages, we'll do six stages over three weekends, and let's use this as an opportunity for 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 to to celebrate the tour. Let's not miss a July because the last time the tour missed July was in World War II, during World War II." So I think there was a real push to like keep the tour alive, even if it was virtually, um, and celebrate and, and and raise money for charity. So that was the whole idea. Um, they they ASO, who is the um, really the event promoter, reached out to the teams, and the teams saw this as a huge opportunity because what ASO brings to the table are the twenty broadcasters that would normally carry the Tour de France, and that has immense value for the teams and the sponsors in a period when there's, there hasn't been any racing since, you know, early March. So, um, it came together very quickly. We had limited resources. We scoped it to three weekends, two maps. Um, and, um, we managed to find, uh, well, secure nearly, I think it was 39 teams in the end, 23 teams on the men's side. And uh, we got all of the world tour teams plus some pro Conti teams. The only two teams that, that did not take part, Movie Star and UAE. But otherwise, we have everyone else, which is which is amazing. Um, and on the women's side, we have uh, 16 uh, teams, all of the top teams, except for for a couple. I think Mitchelton Scott women's team couldn't make it happen, partly because most of them in Australia. It's very difficult. I mean, you know, the, these races happen during European afternoons. Um, so yeah, so this past weekend we. <laughs> 
we uh, we got through the first weekend and I think, um, I don't know, you know, my personal view is that we have an, an experience that felt like bike racing to me, even though what I was seeing were avatars, it was exciting bike racing, breakaways, chase, sprints, all of the typical, you know, elements of what bike racing is, is, is so good at producing. Uh, and it's all like packed into a one hour show, right? This is, I don't think I can handle more than one hours of, of, of bike racing doing, right? And so, I, you know, again, I think it was a, a proof point this weekend and we've got two more weekends and, you know, there's a lot of work that we need to do to tweak things. I mean, remember that we are the, we are the ones providing clean feeds to all the broadcasters. And then the broadcaster take that feeds, put graphics over it. Like you can take the global feed by ASO and they're a production company, or you can overlay your own graphics on top of that. So we have a team producing, you know, six to eight cameras and just making sure all this happens seamlessly. Uh, so we passed the biggest test and I think you're going to see more exciting races coming in the next two weekends. But I think, look, my, my view is that if this works and there's interest from the fans, there's interest from the riders, interest from sponsors, and the you know the owner of the Tour de France. Why wouldn't we want to do more of this? Is there a plan to become more integrated into the traditional season and have guys like uh, Garant Thomas and you know the top level uh, best bike riders in the world racing concurrently during their their regular season post COVID? I think it's going to be driven by. You know, what do the sponsors want? What do the teams want? What do, you know, it's got to be led commercially. Like if it, if it all makes sense commercially, why wouldn't you do it? You know, I think the, the riders are really engaged. If you, you know, if you look at the winners from this past weekend, they felt like they win. A win is a win. You know, I don't care where it is because it's about who you're competing with, right? And so they beat legitimate riders. To them, it's just as valuable. And particularly on the woman's side, who uh, women's peloton, which haven't seen the, uh, the the Tour de France since 1984. It's been mm. it's been 36 years. Uh, so this is huge. They're getting more coverage from the virtual Tour de France than any race ever. This is this is their moment. This is their big moment, really. Um, well, and Mitchelton Scott told me back in you know back uh, for the Tour for All, the coverage that we were producing on Eurosport, they were getting more coverage from that than uh, from Paris. I was I was definitely one of those people. I couldn't do it on Saturday, but I watched yesterday, Sunday, the uh, the second stage, and I have to say it was exciting. And I had a few friends on text messages, and I'm saying, "Are you guys watching this?" We actually even postponed our outdoor ride to watch <laughs> watch both the the women, the final of the the women's and and the men's race. And for me, okay. We've always talked about how do we make cycling more interesting? Do we really want to watch six hours of these guys just rolling along? Or do we just kind of want to get down to brass tacks? And the women's race was about 45 minutes. The men's race was about 41. And like you just mentioned, that was kind of enough for me. Like I saw what I wanted to see. And the way that you gave the riders their own jersey and a bib number Instead of saying, hey, who's that? You could actually, from the camera an angles, see the person. So you were much more involved. And then the announcers did a fantastic job because that's the hard thing when you're, you know, mm. on Zwift yourself, you know, doing it. You don't know really what's going on, but they're adding a certain sense of excitement. And, and afterwards, um, one, of the, one of my friends that is probably the hardest guy to get kind of involved with it because he's such a traditionalist and that's George Hincapie. He's like, man, I, I use Zwift, but at the same time, like that doesn't make a bike racer. Like you got to know how to handle your bike. You got to know how to fuel correctly, et cetera, et cetera. I'm like, yeah, but this is all we've got right now. <laughs> and he even admitted to me when we went riding after the race was over, Hey, that was pretty good. That was pretty exciting. <laughs> so we're we're you're making you're making some inroads. You're making some progress, Eric. That's that's for sure. And to me, watching the races and the gamification, like you said, that's part of it. And a guy like Freddie Ovet is, you know, a young rider, very, very talented. He's actually guest riding for the um one of the teams, uh, Israel Startup Nation. And he's he almost won yesterday 
This is an experienced Zwifter. But what I saw that was so interesting to me was that there were so many French riders in the front, in the front group. And I didn't really expect these guys to take it as serious as they did. So my hat goes oh, off no, to those guys. Seriously. <laughs> and you got to remember, anytime being a French rider, anytime the Tour de France is mentioned, these guys just click it into a totally different gear. You know, they've been kind of like middle of the pack and then Tour de France comes around and they're everywhere. Mm. And yesterday it was the same thing. And to see Julian Bernard just clip oh, pretty, uh, poor Freddie Ovette there at the end, everybody using a power up. These guys are learning the gamification of the system. And that's what people have to realize is that it is a game and you do have to think tactics. So if you think it's just power, you know, power is a big part of it. Let's be honest. But using those power ups at the right time, going into the arrow tuck and just being able to get your heart rate just a few beats lower before you hit that next next hill. It, it's all part of it. And to me, it was great. And I'm glad it was only 45 minutes because I don't want to stand there for six hours. But I got my little hit of, of competition. Yeah, I thought the women's racing was even more exciting, right? Because you had the two climbers, they had the lead or the three up. So two climbers, uh, American bridges up to the two climbers on the downhill. And then there was a, a pack of like three others, including Lawrence Stevens, who eventually, you know, came together in the final three K, but she had a teammate up the road, which means she didn't have to chase. She let the other riders do the chasing. It's just like, you know, your typical bike racing. And then of course, when you come into the, the final sprint, yeah, she had a teammate, she could sit there and rest for the sprint. Um, I couldn't think of a better for the first weekend, better winners from you know U.S. on the women's side and and uh, Frenchmen on the men's side. I think it's super exciting in terms of like where we want to see a lot of interest come from. So it was just a a fabulous weekend of racing, and I I do think the riders are taking this very very seriously. You saw G G was putting out some pretty big effort, um, and. Um, and unfortunately, he didn't make the final split, but he put out some incredible numbers. I was just wondering, like, how is, he's at the front and he's dropping Matthew Vanderpool to the back. Mm. And, you know, and I'm just thinking, is, is G putting out that much more power than Matthew Vanderpool? Because the weight difference is only like three kilograms between those two. But yeah, Thomas Garant was putting out more watts. And so it, that's the other thing about, about Zwift is like just having access to all that telemetry is is um is super exciting and this is where the parallels with, with traditional esports and zwift is is fascinating because we are all playing the same game we understand the effort that goes into producing that kind of you know uh performance and you have just this incredible um you know I I incredible respect for for these riders I, I, especially the women it, it, those numbers that they are producing is just out of this world. So yeah, I think it's meant to inspire people like me who, you know, understand and respect that and, and, and want me to do more, more of this. So yeah, this is, this is all content at the end of the day for us. It's sport content and an inspiration for, for the rest of us. So outside of the racing, you also had the tap to tour social ride, which definitely knowing fellow Zwifters, they would turn into a race as well. How'd yeah. that go? Yeah, we had, I was just looking at the numbers. We had um, uh, about 80, almost 90,000 signups this weekend. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's, you know, this is what you could do virtually. Whereas like if you were to do the tap to tour in France, it's like it caps at 15,000. That's just the first weekend. So we have two more weekends to go. It's, it's great. I think when you just ride around Zwift, that's one thing. It's great. But then when you turn that into a moment, turn it into an event, when you bring in the branding and there's a lot of um, promotion that goes with it, and then there is a brand that's, that's associated with it, it's, it's, it's special, right? And this is, uh, this, is, this is what we're trying to create virtually. And I think it's been very successful. This morning, and uh, we have the start of what we're calling the discovery rides for stages one and two. And about 700 people, six or 700 people showed up in my group and we get to ride the same course as the pros. And so that connection between 
the professionals and the community is super important. Like we would never do something unless there was a, you know, something for the community. And it's, it's not just the viewing, it's gotta be participation. That's where you can create the engagement. It's, it's been successful so far. I think you're going to see bigger numbers over the next two weekends and during the week as well. Eric, let's look to the future now. Um, before we wrap this up, what are the challenges facing Zwift? Uh, and, and what are some of the, I guess, exciting developments that we can expect um, or some areas that you, you're wanting to push into in the future? Well, I think we're going to push in both directions. Um, we're going to keep pushing on the sporting side, mm-hmm. uh, but we'll also start pushing down to a broader market. So those who might be a tennis player, we want them to um, evaluate Swift. You know, we want them to consider Swift. Or if you're a skier, anyone who you know are into sports of some uh, of some kind, I think Swift should be that experience for you. Um, and then keep pushing on the on the sporting side. I think um, there are huge opportunities around creating esports leagues. Um, I think there's still more work to to be done. Uh, rowing is coming out in a few few weeks, and I think that's an, another interesting. With the crossover between rowing and and cycling is is pretty strong because rowing is very much about the legs. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, there's upper body as well, but if you're a good rower out of the gate, you're going to be an incredibly strong and talented uh, cyclist. Cameron Worth is just one example of that. Incredible athlete. Ex-Olympic rower, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah. Uh, so I think I think we just continue to do more uh, of what we do, have been doing, um, but you broaden the appeal to get more people into, into the, uh, into Zwift, onto Zwift, and then just keep pushing on the supporting side. And uh, yeah, we're we're, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we're integrated into the UCI calendar in the future. If it doesn't happen next year, it will happen not very soon afterwards. Um, the World Championships is still out there, so we'll see. There'll be some big announcements about that. And um, like I said earlier, if, uh, if the Tour de France, which is the highest level for cycling, we can successfully virtualize that, I mean, really... There's, there's no end to what we can do because if you think of the string of events that are out there, right, all the different bike races, all the new bike races that we can potentially create. Um, so think of Zwift as a platform where you, you know, on a self-service basis, sometime in the future, an event promoter could decide to use our platform to host virtual races versus real races because guess what? It's getting harder and harder to secure those permits. It's getting more and more expensive to you know, create safety, uh, a safe environment for, for those races. And so again, it's, let's make it more accessible, more affordable for everyone. Well, Eric, it's been a uh, pretty cool six years watching the way that Zwift has evolved and looking forward to the next six years for sure. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate you ha- having you on the show. And yeah, let's all watch the, the virtual tour and take part in the, the Atapta tour the, over the next two weekends. Fantastic. Thanks, guys. Right on. So, Bobby, before we end the show, a couple of things that Eric said and just questions I've sort of had sort of circling as well, just surrounding the Zwift format. And knowing you, obviously, you're a former pro and are now uh, a coach who, who does a lot of coaching with Zwift. I'm interested to see how you see real-life cycling and, and real-world application of the sport uh, meeting the Zwift and, and that platform and what opportunities it provides for you as a coach and for the athletes um, to enhance their ability both on the road but also too just exploring this new world of, of virtual esports. Well, I've been using the Zwift platform since 2014 as a training tool because a lot of the the barriers or the hurdles that riders have to deal with when trying to train, you know, over the off season or with bad weather is that they just don't have the roads to do the specificity, the 20 minute efforts, the 30 minute efforts, the, the, the uphills, you know, maximum capacity efforts. So Zwift has really allowed me to help riders build the motor. And I know there's a lot more that goes into the sport than just building the motor. You know, you still have to learn how to handle your bike. You still have to have a good tactical sense. You still have to to be able to make decisions on the fly. But this really takes out a lot of the excuses of, hey, 
it was raining outside or it was too cold outside. I don't have that sort of climb. I don't have that segment. And now riders are able to do the work and building the car, the motor is a very important piece, but then getting out on the road, that's like putting on a really nice pair of wheels or a new paint job onto that car. And it all comes together, but you have to do the work. And especially with a lot of people with time crunched uh, agendas, they don't have time to ride an hour out to a climb, do the climb a couple times and ride an hour back. But with Zwift, you can basically create the perfect road in a very safe environment. And really it takes you, what, two to three minutes to chuck on your cycling kit and your cycling shoes and uh, get the computer up and running and then you're off. And that time is so well spent and it's that specificity can just be nailed. Obviously it's not outdoors. Obviously there's a, you're not fighting gravity. You're not fighting wind resistance, but with, with the addition of the kicker climb, which actually uh, raises and lowers with the undulation in the road and Zwift, it makes it a lot more enjoyable. So for me and for the people that I work with, the clients and friends, Zwift is definitely a part of how you're going to train for the outdoors. I don't think it'll ever replace outdoor riding just because the spirit of, you know, the feeling of the wind blowing through your hair and accelerating over the top of the climb and bombing down the descent. That's something that can't yet be replicated. Uh, who knows what, what Zwift has in mind in the future, but I think it's a fantastic tool. I've used it myself just to get a little bit more fit and, and it has made a difference. One more question I have, um, and it goes back to our conversation with Eric, and that is the ability of Zwift to essentially showcase riders who might not have had a platform beforehand or might not have had the resources to get to a race. Um, you know, and then you, you mentioned Freddie Ovette, right? A very experienced Zwift racer, and he had, you know, finished second on a stage of the Tour de France uh, yesterday. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on like using Zwift as a talent ID. You mentioned it then, right? This is the motor. There's still the rest of the car to build, to use that analogy. Do you think that's a good idea or do you think there's a place for that or what are the issues you you, you see that can come from just identifying riders on Zwift? Oh, I definitely think it's a, uh, it's a huge part of talent ID because you can't get to all these locations where riders are, especially with the travel restrictions that there are now. But if you can get an idea of the size of the rider's motor, that kind of narrows your search down to the people that you really want to concentrate on. So it, it also gives, instead of sending out a resume or an email, which may get lost in the mail, may get lost in the inbox, you can actually send them your power file from a Zwift event. And that's going to raise some eyebrows. And I know that teams are using it already. Uh, but yes, that's not the whole enchilada. There's a lot more ingredients that goes into making a, a good bike racer, but it's a good start and it's something that we've never had before. So I'm, I'm totally for it. I think the Zwift Academy has been fantastic. There's a lot of other platforms that are using, you know, online racing or riding testing as a way of defining what rider they want to look at. And um, in this day and age with all the technology we have around us, why not? It's, it's a great platform. Okay, everyone, that's it. That's all we have time for this week. I hope you enjoyed this very informative episode with Eric Min. And thank you again, Eric, for joining us. Remember, you can always find our past episodes as well as a ton of other fantastic cycling journalism over at velonews.com. We're on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify. Just search for Put Your Socks On or Fizzo, P-Y-S-O. Please continue to show your support by subscribing and please spread the word by telling your friends. This episode was produced by Bobby J uh, and myself, edited by Eddie Rogers. Uh, you can get in contact with us on social media at That Is Gus and at bobby.julik on Instagram. So just reach out to either of us there with suggestions, feedback, uh, or just say hello. Bobby, it's always a pleasure sitting with you and discussing the uh, events that 
confront the sport of cycling. Thank you for listening. Until next week, I'm Angus Morton. And I'm Bobby Julik. Remember to stay safe, stay sane, stay calm, and don't forget to put your socks on. Whoop is a fitness wearable that provides personalized insights on the performance of your sleep, how recovered your body is, and how much stress and exertion you put on your body throughout the day. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, and heart rate variability that can be used as an indicator for how to approach your day. The app has built-in features like Strain Coach, which gives you target exertion goals to work out optimally at your body's recovery level. Whoop automatically detects and categorizes your activity so there's no need to start and stop your workout. You can analyze your heart rate throughout the entirety of your workout and also track your calories burned, max heart rate, and average heart rate. It's the perfect way to train. The app also has a built-in sleep coach, which lets you know how much sleep you should be getting based on your expected activity level for the following day. So you can wake up and be recovered based on your performance goals. Whoop is offering 15% off with the code VELONEWS at checkout. Go to whoop, W-H-O-O-P dot com and enter VELONEWS at the checkout to save 15%. Sleep better recover faster, and train smarter. Optimize your performance with Whoop today.